Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm rooting, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 496. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. Show 496, man. How close are we getting to show 500 and then beyond? I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. First up is the main fiction and it is How You Ruined Everything by Constantine Paradis. Then we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis with looking back at genre history, which should have been in July, but I forgot Amy would give us it. <laughs> Sorry, Ames. <laughs> so that is all coming in today's show. I do hope you will enjoy it. So before we get into the main fiction, like I say, show 500 is clamouring at our heels there. All things hopefully are going okay there. Like I say... I'm not going to, at, at this moment, do the kind of kickstart and everything like that. We are still kind of, you know, slogging away, getting every everyone out. And that's getting very close there now. We're on the kind of final draft of that. And next we'll be printing some copies off to have a look as a physical copy of the book as well. So look out for that. I'll be shouting from the skies about that. Don't forget... This Worldcon, Jeremy's going to Helsinki again. Just another reminder, if you're there, if you're a writer, narrator, a fan of Starship so far, pop in and see him. He's, got, he's on a few panels at the, the Worldcon in Helsinki, and he's going without his mum. Sorry, Jeremy, man. Actually, when you think, even Jeremy's been here now. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's getting a bit long in the tooth. So... Look out for Jeremy at Worldcon. So we'll, we'll jump straight into the main fiction. How You Ruined Everything by Constantine Paradis. Now, just a quick note from me just seeing those few introduction words there about Constantine. I've, it's, things have changed. I've stopped. I went and made a coffee and I've pickled me beetroot. <laughs> 20 minutes I've been away. I put some beetroot. <laughs> Where am I going with this? I put some beetroot on before I start recording the show and realised it was done. So, you know what I mean? You've got to do what you've got to do. Anyway, back to the story. Constantine is a writer by choice and a member of the Science Fiction Writers of America. His short stories have been published in Dystopian Utopia Anthology by Flame Tree Press and the Crackle of Cthulhu Anthology. 
His short story collection, Sorry, Wrong Country, is published by Rooster Public Press. This story is narrated by my good friend, Mr. Jonathan Sharp. Jonathan began narrating for the Hugo Award-winning Starship Silver as a way to give back to the community that brings him great joy on a weekly basis. By day, he slings cheese and wine at a local grocery. And by night, loses at board games to his infinitely more talented wife, Paige. Recently, in an attempt to hide from the sun, they have transplanted themselves in the Pacific Northwest and are soaking up the rain using their new puppy mud sponge, Finn. Jonathan has become a regular narrator for District of Wonders Network, including the horror podcast Our Tales to Terrify and Fantasy Farfetch Fables. He's also a producer for Audible through the ACX platform. And Jonathan is one of the narrators for my anthology Everyone Worlds Without Walls. Yes, I, Jonathan, like you see, was moving and I sent him an email and he said, Tony, I'm going to be, it's going to be weeks, possibly months. And I just wanted Jonathan, you know what I mean? I said, Jonathan, I can wait. Do you know what I mean? And got a great story back. Oh, fantastic. So that's coming in soon as well. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present. How You Ruined Everything by Constantine Paradias. Read by Jonathan Sharp. The first step towards realizing it's your fault that everything's gone wrong is admitting that you were, at the time, the only man with a functioning time machine. The second step is, of course, admitting that you stole it from its original owner by bashing his head in with a shovel when he wasn't looking, and that you left the poor bastard out in the rain with your insurance details, just in case you came back 15 seconds of real time later to help him using copious applications of your now almost inexhaustible capital and considerable connections. Because what you were going to do was step into that time machine, go back to the past and make your life so much better. Armed with the knowledge of other people's financial and personal successes, you would venture into times of the monkey men, or your dad's, and there proceed to build yourself a financial empire. The third part towards realizing how the entire mess might actually be your fault is realizing that you don't know the first thing about driving a time machine. That, as you look at the series of knobs, flashing lights, levers, revolving spigots, glass tubes, masses of wires, and circuitry, with the complexity of fractals, you don't think, Dear God, what is this thing? Instead you say, Yeah, I got this. As you start pressing buttons and flicking unlabeled switches and turning spigots and prodding screens, listening to impossible machinery rev and whir and roar beneath the dashboard and inside the unknowable bowels of the machine, you don't for one moment stop to consider, I have no idea what I'm doing. Instead you say, all right, rev it up. As the time machine screeches, roars, and a previously obscured dial pops out of the dashboard, proceeding to spin and whistle madly, your instincts, honed by a steady diet of science fiction books and serials, tells you that this is obviously the date dial, through which you can adjust your destination. You're too busy winding it, flipping it to your date of choice, that you don't stop for a moment to consider that none of those numbers are dates, and that smaller dial... Why is it pointing to Mill? As usual, you just say, Come on, baby, 1960, let's go. 
So the time machine roars once more, shudders like a cheetah in the heat, and then it jumps. You find yourself in a forest with pine trees tall as houses blocking your view. It jumps again and you're on a hill, overlooking a glade where men in long robes wave sickles and gnash their teeth in sight of you. You jump again and this time you're in a jungle. Then you're in a marsh. Then you're standing beneath the shadow of a great mountain. Then you just jump and jump and jump and jump. By the time the machine screeches to a halt so sudden it sends you flying, you find yourself landing in the middle of a field of tall grass, beneath a sky that's baby's room wallpaper blue. The air smells clearer, fresher, yet still alien. You take a whiff, look at the empty fields around you that seem like they're stretching on forever, as you notice the first group of upright monkeys that are slowly approaching you. You think... This doesn't look like Woodstock at all. The upright monkeys approach you, and you're naturally scared. You never liked monkeys anyway. They're like caricatures of people. All hair and big stupid eyes and mouths full of teeth. One of them, the biggest and bravest of the bunch, reaches his long, misshapen hand to touch you. He's unarmed, but you've seen Odyssey 2001. You know it's only a matter of time before he finds a big enough bone to smash your ribs. So you know that you're up for some preemptive self-defense. The rock's in your hand before you know it. It's jagged and it barely fits in your palm, therefore perfect. You whack the upright monkey with it because you'll be damned if you let another one of those things bite you in the ear like the circus one did when you were six. The upright monkey squeals, snarls, and claws blindly at empty air. So you crack it on the head again and again. When it's down, you sit on its chest and keep bashing it until it's good and quiet. Not once, at any point, do you stop to think, Jesus Christ, what am I doing? What if I'm altering history? What comes out of your mouth is, Yeah, yeah, get some, get some! So you throw away the rock. The upright monkey ladies begin to swoon for you as soon as they're done soiling themselves in terror. The monkey men begin divvying up the corpse to offer you their new master. Long story short, you ended up spending the night with them, showing off that trick you learned with your lighter back in college. Somehow, and not in any way that you could actually put down, a great fire breaks out that consumes the entire valley of tall grass. So you run back to your time machine. Panicked, you start pressing buttons again, flicking every switch the other way, but this time... You turn all the dials away from you, as if this is going to help. You sneak a look at the dial, which now reads 1800 mil. As the time machine revs up and jumps forward and upward, you never once stop to think, maybe I should stop. Maybe I should try to go back and ask the man I brained for directions, before I brain him, of course. Instead, you say, onward and upward. When the time machine screeches to a screaming halt, before you open your eyes, you find your senses assaulted by an overwhelming smell of burning plastic. Something flies by you, leaving behind only an afterimage of green light and a scent very much like battery acid. Something behind you explodes, just as you're beginning to rev up the time machine, when a cold metal hand wraps around your arm. You follow it and find yourself staring into a pair of frosted glass eyes set above something that looks like a speaker. Throctu Akar. It blares. Ah! You retort. 
The metal thing with a speaker for a face raises its other arm, producing something that looks like a prop gun from a Flash Gordon flick. When a ragged man jumps from cover and cuts its hand clean off with a sword made out of light, the dial of the machine spins and stops short of 180 mil as you slap the big red button at the center of the dashboard, and you're ejected across time with a severed robot arm that bleeds black on your lap. When you finally stop, you're standing beside a podium. A short man with tiny beady eyes and a toothbrush-wide mustache looks at you, his hand frozen mid-salute. There's a red band wrapped around his arm that looks awfully familiar. Was ist das? The man at the podium asks with a voice you've come to recognize after countless hours of Call of Duty. Somehow, the Flash Gordon props in your hand and you pull the trigger. Green light shoots from the tip and strikes the familiar man, reducing him to a pile of dust in an instant. As the Gestapo officers run towards you, machine guns in hand, you're thinking, Damn, I just killed Hitler. You say, Hot diggity damn. You pull the lever, not really checking the dial. One of the officers shoots at you, and you see the bullet slowing down mid-flight, stopping, then returning back to the barrel, swallowing up the same flame that had just propelled it through the air. You jump, and in the time it takes you to blink, the time machine has landed in the middle of a park, in a place that smells like freshly bloomed anemones, with just a dash of hash. You look around, and all you can see is hippies jangling their guitars to the non-tune of Yoko on the radio, turned to almost music by the genius of John Lennon. The hippies run, of course. They head for the hills, their reefers forgotten in the grass. Only one girl's left, staring at you with wide-eyed wonder. Where the hell did you come from? she asks, her voice sounding vaguely familiar. The way she's dressed, her clothes a mishmash of beads and cotton threads complete with a makeshift dreamcatcher hanging from her neck between her breasts. She looks like a pagan goddess, refitted for the 20th century. I'm from the future, you tell her in your most suave tone. Wanna hop on my time machine? You gave her a wink that you know is embarrassing, even under these circumstances. You're from the future, huh, spaceman? Whose arm is that? She tells you, smiling as she looks at the severed robot arm still in my lap. Oh, that? That's just a trophy taken from one of my fallen foes. The future is a dangerous place, after all. Thank goodness for my ray gun, I suppose. You say, reaching out for it, when you suddenly realize it's not on you anymore. Frantically, you start patting down your jacket, your pants. You open dashboard drawers, spilling out yellow papers and dog-eared notebooks with gilded lettering. Suddenly, it hits you. The Nazis have the goddamn ray gun. You're desperately trying to consider the implications when the hippie girl walks up to you and her hazel eyes suddenly dawn in your field of vision. Her lips are the color of fresh cherries. She runs her hand through her hair, and she doesn't feel right. She feels divine. It's okay. You can show off later. Later when, you ask. She kisses you and you roll on the grass, your hands grabbing and fondling at each other. The entire time you're thinking, Eh, why hurry? I've got a time machine, for Christ's sake. You're sharing a post-makeout joint when she says, 
My name's Lily. <sighs> she exhales, letting out a billow of smoke so white you'd think her lungs had elected a new pope. You know, you look like a lily. <sighs> you say, blowing halfway formed rings of smoke. You look at her as she turns, eyes following the arch of her back as you're passing the roach, when you notice them for the first time. Poking out from under a low-cut top, first, the tiny tail, wagging at the small of her back. Second, the tiny patch of ink printed beside it. You know, you're the first man I've seen who didn't have a tail. <sighs> she says, half-smiling, as she turns to ruffle your hair. Well, you and my fiancé, anyway. What's that thing on your back? You ask, as your brain slowly pieces together the design. It's a tattoo shaped like a stylized swastika. Please let this be a postmodern statement, you pray. What, that? Oh, you like it? It's a party thing. They were going to put it on my palm like everybody else, but I thought, why not try something new, you know? Why, where's your tattoo? She says between puffs. That's a Nazi. Oh, God. Oh, please, don't tell me you're one of those Jew lovers. My fiancé went to one of their rallies once, and they shipped him off to Nam to kill gooks all day, Lily responds matter-of-factly. Fiancé? You have a boyfriend? You exclaim suddenly. The small details that had escaped you began to sink in. The color of her eyes, her hair, the line of her neck, the sound of her voice, the derision in her tone. Where did you say you lived? Over in Jonestown, a ways off from the big city. And your fiancé's name's Kurt? Mm-hmm. And your maiden name's Popowitz? Used to be. Daddy changed it to Lauk after the war. To get on the party's good side, you know. How come you know so much about me? And suddenly, it hits you. This woman you just fiercely made out with is your own mother, who is a Nazi, like everyone else, because you gave them a ray gun in the first place. The fourth part towards realizing how you've messed everything up is coming to terms with the fact that everything that's gone wrong is entirely your own damn fault. Also, that you need to stop and fix whatever it is you're doing right now. The fifth part towards realizing that everything is your fault is taking a deep breath and trying to earnestly get your thoughts together to think of a viable solution. Finding the man who's owned this machine and asking for his help is a solid plan. Thinking about going back in time to the point before he met you, and thus risking a paradox, is not. Guess which one you go for. As you run to the time machine, your own mother chasing after you, screaming, Juden! Halt! Juden! Flipping the dials, you watch as the counter on the dial changes from mil, to sen, to des, to ye, all the way down to day, thinking... I can do this. I can fix this. I've got all the time in the world. And then your own mother throws a rock at your eye, and you hit a switch by accident. The time machine revs up and you watch in horror as the dial flips from day to ma. Same way kitchen dials do, switching from the lowest setting to the highest. Now the reading has changed from 450 days to 450 millennia. And before you can utter a single word, you've already jumped. And landed in the middle of a desert. Then in a city made of rock and wood, 
or starved men and desperate women scream at the sight of you. Then, in the middle of a jungle, set ablaze beneath a sky the color of charcoal, fresh out of the bag. Before the time machine lurches for a final time, crushing something that screeches once as it snaps its neck. Terrified, you chance a look, fearing for the worst. Thankfully, it's only a velociraptor caught in its dying throes, shaking its full color plumage. With a great squawk, the majestic thing dies as you spin on your chair at the verge of tears. Not only because you've just had velociraptors ruined forever, but because you have also plunged history into a mess that it couldn't possibly get out of. How the hell would you find the time traveler? And even if you did, how could you rationalize with him? How could you make him stop you from making everything even worse? Why couldn't time travel be simple, like in the movies, where history and time were just obstacles to be brushed aside at the hero's whim? You're too busy feeling sorry for yourself and the entire universe when the crushed Velociraptor's brothers burst from the foliage, seeking both to overpower and to devour the strange, weeping thing that just crushed their brother. They look like killer peacocks as they flap their tiny hands and shake their plumage, their claws aiming for your throat. You turn a lever blindly and watch them retreat back into the dense jungles as you fast-forward yourself back to safety. When you think you've reached a safe place, you stop the time machine and climb off it without turning the dial. Choking back your tears, you sit beneath the shadow of a great oak tree, looking at the instrument that you have just used to doom everything. You get dressed, take a deep breath, and start going through all the drawers all over again. The majority of the manuals and notebooks have been lost, left in the field where you romped with Nazi Lily. If the time machine ever had an instruction booklet, it has been lost along with so much else. No way around it, you think. I'll just have to find the time traveler myself. You're too busy stuffing what few papers are left inside the drawer, looking through their gilded lettering trying to come up with a solid, viable plan that would allow you to restore history back to its originally less terrible state when you notice the shape of a man creeping up behind you. You're about to turn to talk to him when you hear the distinct noise of a shovel being dragged across the ground and then a swooshing through the air, going for your head. You needn't look behind you to know exactly who he is. Oh, you stupid bastard. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Constantine. And big thank you to Jonathan as well. Jonathan, thank you so much. Constantine, thank you. What a story. Yes, what a story. Thank you so much. Get some more sent in. So, next up. Well, actually, before we next up, before we little next up there, don't forget, please support this fine Starship Sova show and support Tales to Terrify and Farfetch Favors. We're all in the District of Wonders. If you want to pop over to Patreon, there'll be a link in the show notes. Please help out. A couple of quid a month. Do you know what I mean? If you do some, actually, if you do a little bit more, you get more goodies. All the volumes of Starship Sova, you know, Starship Sova stories, one, two, and three, and Tales to Terrify. I get, I send you a postcard. I do anything, man, just to keep this show going. So if you've been listening for a while and you like what we do, support her. Amy, it's t- <laughs> all I can just oh, Ames, I'm sorry. You know what I mean? Goes in one ear and out the other, man. I'm so forgetful. <gasps> Nearly forgot me beetroot if you'd listened earlier on today as well. 
Hello, my friends. It is time for another look back into genre history, and today I would like to recommend a book—not a book from genre history, but a book about genre history. Now, I should back up for a moment and set the stage here. In a couple of my more recent segments, namely those on episodes four seventy-six and four eighty-four, I talked about one of the current living legends of science fiction and fantasy, Lois McMaster Bujold, and her relationship with fandom, and in particular, fan fiction. And in those segments, I mentioned the. Modern rise of contemporary media fandom, and I dated that from Star Trek and the participatory culture that built up around that. And I totally stick by that. But just because that's the rise of modern media fandom doesn't mean that's the rise of fandom itself. And of course, if we go back far enough, we can define fandom in a lot of ways. Some of you may recall that way back on Arl Delight's episode twenty-eight, that is June of two thousand eight, a long time ago, I talked about the Baron de Lamotte Fouquet's eighteen thirteen runaway hit, The Magic Ring, which caused a sensation. People would throw parties and have early versions of cosplay where they would dress up like the characters and all sorts of things. So. Fandom, as we know it, has been around for a long time. But for our purposes right now, I would like to recommend another way of looking at fandom, and that is through the book "As If: Modern Enchantment and the Literary Prehistory of Virtual Reality" by Michael Saylor. This was published in 2012 by Oxford University Press. Saylor identifies three. Participatory fandoms coming out of the Victorian age, that moving into the early twentieth century, redefined what participatory fandom looked like, and showed a kind of new perspective toward engaging with, interacting with, and living with texts. And he identifies three communities that. Essentially, took on the work they loved, created a sandbox where they could all play in it, and took this kind of community to a different level. One, the first, the fandom surrounding Arthur Conan Doyle and the Sherlock Holmes works. Second, H.P. Lovecraft and his Cthulhu mythos. Of course, he didn't use that term <laughs> while he was alive, but the mythos surrounding his work. That was built by originally his stories, and lastly, J.R.R. Tolkien and Middle Earth fandom. The key to all of this, Sailor says, is that these three bodies of texts—the works of Arthur Conan Doyle and Lovecraft and Tolkien—provide reenchantment for the disenchanted. And the key here is that you need to say, "Hey, why all at the beginning of the 20th century? What do these have in common?" And in between the lines, Sailor implies that there's something with the sort of Victorian turn that sets up the 20th century, not only that sets up 
communities to be ready for in the West, these three authors, but also something about the Victorian turn that we can identify with today, because it's worth noting that all three of these communities, the Sherlock Holmes fandom, the Cthulhu fandom, and the Middle Earth fandom have all had really strong reawakenings here in the end of the 20th and beginning of the 21st century. And so it's worth just looking for a minute at the parallels between, say, Victorian Britain and today. Victorian Brits faced issues that are pretty easily recognizable to us. They lived in a time of incredibly rapid change. The Victorian era saw, you know, the handwritten letter give way to the telegram and the telegram give way to the telephone call. There were concerns about economic recession and unemployment, political debates over immigration and domestic terror, older generations bemoaning the dumbing down of mass culture and the degeneration of personal morality and the end of civil discourse, etc., etc., etc. I like the way Michael L. Patterson reminds us in his book, A Brief History of Life in Victorian Britain. He says, quote, like the Victorians, we are constantly enthralled to innovation and to new technology, taking for granted things that only a decade ago seemed like scientific fantasy. And he goes on to say, the more people could do, the more they sought to do, and thus the greater the stress they put on themselves, a notion that is considered equally true of our own time, end quote. So rapid fire change, upheaval, Future shock, what was the upshot of all of this for the Victorians? Well, if you believe German sociologist, political economist, philosopher Max Faber, modernity in this context brought a kind of two-edged sword. On the one hand, it freed people from the confines of pointless traditions. Rational people, modern people, didn't just do necessarily what had been done before just because it's the way things had always been done. There was a questioning of what came before. But on the other hand, that same rationalism created a world that restricted individual freedom because people felt trapped like cogs in a great machine. Think about the sort of dehumanized figures in the visuals from Fritz Lang's Metropolis, that industrialization had brought uh, a machine that essentially chewed up individuals. And in Weber's view, all of this ultimately produced disenchantment, the loss of meaning and wonder and creativity. So how do we get it back? Michael Saylor says in As If that something that all three of these authors, Arthur Conan Doyle, H.P. Lovecraft, and J.R. Tolkien, brought to audiences was a kind of re-enchantment that also spoke to reason, that both the logical brain and the spiritual heart were captured in these texts. Here's how he puts it, quote, the widely felt need of the period for forms of wonder and spirituality that accorded with reason and science helps us to understand why fantastic yet rational imaginary worlds proliferated at the turn of the century and after, end quote. And essentially, then Saylor goes on to explain how each of these three authors and their bodies of work created audiences that needed to do more than just consume these works passively. They needed to 
somehow join in the storytelling, somehow play in that sandbox that the authors had created and become active participants in a fandom community that allowed for imaginative interaction with the texts. I should point out that this kind of interaction isn't just writing new stories in the universes or dressing up like people in the universes or role-playing to one degree or another. This also includes a kind of fanish scholarship analysis of the text. It's worth pointing out that Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes fandom brought things out of fans that we consider to be everyday activities today. In fact, the term canon was first used outside of uh, scriptural analysis and exegesis by people in the Sherlock Holmes fandom. Originally, the term canon had been used for the study of religious scripture. For example, in a biblical context, um, the questioning of what books in the Bible were considered authoritative and would be compiled as part of the Bible as opposed to extra-biblical texts. Well, as fans of the Home Saga were trying to figure out which stories were, in fact, in the accepted body of novels and short stories and facts gleaned from Arthur Conan Doyle, well, then it becomes a question of a sort of secular religion, right? Um, if you are a true Holmesian or if you're a true Sherlockian, um, what are the canonical works? And canon became applied to fandom. The same sort of debates that, you know, we're having today in Star Wars and Star Trek uh, fandom and in other fandoms. What's canon and what isn't? Another term also got used by the, or adopted, I should say, and then used by Sherlock Holmes fandom. That's apocrypha from the Greek word meaning hidden. It's a term that had been used since the fifth century, denoting a separate section of books that, well, in a biblical sense, in between the Old and New Testaments. Martin Luther's Bible of 1534, the Apocrypha, was first published as a separate intertestamental section. And he was making a polemical point about how these books related to canon. In other words, they're, they're sort of secret, they're non-canonical, they're kind of dubious, but of possible interest and use to serious students. Or if you're a completist, you will certainly want to read these. And that's how it got used in Sherlock Holmes fandom, uh, which are the apocryphal works. In fact, you can find now collections called The Apocrypha of Sherlock Holmes that include stories that were published during the lifetime of Arthur Conan Doyle, some by Conan Doyle himself, that are not considered canonical Holmesian works by fans, but are considered of interest, um, possible use to serious students or the kinds of things that completists would certainly want to read. Again, a very rational approach to interacting with a text that you love, a very rational way of enacting fanish activity, right? Uh, classifying, analyzing, labeling different texts and understanding their relationship to the core of what the fandom is all about. For Sailor, the key to Conan Doyle and Lovecraft and Tolkien is that they can, in some sense, delight without deluding. That there is the seduction of the audience into belief 
while the audience is never truly taken away from their rationalism and their understanding of the modern world. And so in recommending this history to you, I will end with sharing uh, the blurb, which nicely ties up the main themes of the work. Many people throughout the world inhabit imaginary worlds communally and persistently, parsing Harry Potter and exploring online universes. These activities might seem irresponsibly escapist. Ah, no, they don't. But history tells another story. Beginning in the late 19th century, when Sherlock Holmes became the world's first virtual reality character, readers began to colonize imaginary worlds, debating serious issues and viewing reality in provisional as-if terms, rather than through essentialist just-so perspectives. From Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos and Tolkien's Middle-earth to World of Warcraft and Second Life, as if provides a cultural history that reveals how we can remain enchanted but not deluded in an age where fantasy and reality increasingly intertwine. So if you would like to look at a particular segment of fandom and its development there in the early 20th century, I would recommend checking out Michael Saylor's As If, Modern Enchantment and the Literary Prehistory of Virtual Reality. This seems particularly appropriate, I should add, because I am recording this on the exact day, 20th anniversary, of the first publication of Harry Potter. And so there's a lot going on online right now, people pointing out where they were when they first read Harry Potter, when they first heard about Harry Potter, how it has changed their life, and what they're doing now because they had encountered Harry Potter and Harry Potter had become a part of their lives. So the discussion of reenchantment and its effects continues. And so with that, I will say thank you for your time and attention. I have a completely different topic up my sleeve for our next meeting. And I look forward to talking to you again soon with another look back at genre history. Thank you. I thank you, Amy. Thank you so much. And again, apologies for not um, sticking in the July one. You know what I mean. But you, you got a week. You got a month off now. <laughs> so that is today's show. I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. And you know, if you are a supporter on Patreon, thank you so much. Man, it does it help. You know what I mean. There's three shows to keep this this kind of baby going. So please, if you can as well, support. Well, that would be fantastic. Couple of quid, five, five dollars, ten dollars, fifteen dollars. You know what I mean? It would be fantastic. Keep going way past show 500. Do the right thing. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Signal getting through, turn on your radio.
speed By the time I get my say I might already be on to you and on my way But you're so far from here And at best I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you Get out there, bye.